This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Weekly Bull and Bear. Today, we have a special podcast. We have Jason Labram, who's founder and president of Intelligence Driven Advisors. He is also a host of a podcast, Financial, uh, the Financial Detox podcast as well. Um, Jason, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, before we kind of really begin, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about um, your firm or, or your podcast in particular? Well, Drew, thanks for having me. It's it's fun to be on this side of it, right? I'm always on your side of it. So <laughs> doing our show, <laughs> the uh, uh, Financial Detox and um, so, no, I, you know, this is great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm sure we'll have a good wrap and uh, talk about some fun stuff. So, Absolutely. Um, one thing I'd like to bring up is, you know, especially across financial advisory firms, is that COVID-19's radically altered the face-to-face nature of this business. Uh, this has definitely led to an increased digital marketing presence. We can talk about Zoom. We can talk about online webinars. Uh, we can talk about LinkedIn posts, et cetera. I mean, how have you guys at Intelligence Driven Advisors adapted? And do you see any like changes that you've initiated that you might think would be in the long term? Well, I mean, even look at us on this this podcast. You know, we're sitting here, Drew, doing this over an, an, uh, you know Microsoft Teams or whatnot and recording and there's so many ways to do, uh, it's just crazy. Right? We, um, so for us, how we've changed is it's become just widely accepted for our clients to meet on, we use uh, ring central, which is, it, it looks a lot and feels like zoom. In fact, it was zoom. And then they just built out an interface into it. But, um, so we're, we're meeting with clients, you know, I have two or three meetings a day with clients on that where beforehand they may have been, you know, kind of in, in office face-to-facers only. Now they've accepted that and they're okay with that. Some of them want that. Some of them refuse it. They're like, I want to come see you. I love being with you. So, but it's going to change the scope of business forever. I think for advisors and uh, I've seen some advisors who aren't, aren't adapting and aren't very good at the technology. And I think that's going to be a problem, right? Um, because you need to be able to get on this technology. You need to be able to talk with either other advisors or, you, you know, your team or, um, and, and especially with clients. So it's a new paradigm. Are you, that, that's what I'm seeing. It's a new paradigm that's here to stay. Yeah, I think, you know, on our end, I've definitely seen that as well. I think one thing we'll probably adapt to is um, definitely travel costs. Uh, right now, I mean, historically, the the days of flying from here to Bozeman to New York uh, for a, for a steak dinner and then flying back have all of a sudden uh, seem kind of <laughs> silly in retrospect. Um, so, I, and then, then of course, I wonder what that means for convention centers and, and hotels and um, pretty much the whole market pertaining to, you know, business, business as a form of travel. I think there's going to be, um, I think there's going to be a serious change because uh, here's a, a cool question that I've, I've asked a few people and I think I've been, I was asked the question and that's what got me going on it. But if you think about all the people who travel for business and all the people who used to go into an office every single day, that was their, that, that was their standard protocol what percentage of those never go back to full-time office and never go back to full-time business travel? 
Yeah, I'd put it at maybe 20. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard as high as 70, and oh, I've wow. heard 20s on the lower end of what I've heard. Right. The people who used to go to the office, and I think it's probably 30. I'm with you. I'm on that end. But I think 30 to 40 percent of, you know, what used to be business travel or what used to be I go to the office every day, just it never goes back to that. It's done. It's different. Yeah. I I mean, and and how do you gauge? I mean, I'm sure some elements are very productive online and then then some just aren't, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so it will be very interesting for firms to, to navigate that. Um, yeah. Especially when you're looking at like what would be a traditional, traditionally social element of the job, right? Like wholesaling. I think people prefer doing that on the road and, and meeting with clients, but then, um, you know, huge segments of the business, whether it might be, uh, uh, compliance and, um, you know, people who are in processing and, and everything else might, might prefer to be you know, keep, keep it remote. But. Yep. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to change for sure. Who knows what the end outcome is? Who knows how long this even lasts, right? That's the other thing. It's like, Hey, are we going to have double dips and triple dips and be back here, you know, looking at resurgences of COVID or is the vaccine really going to get distributed and is it going to be effective and is it, are people going to take it? It, it? So, I mean, unfortunately it's just something that, Nobody was expecting, nobody could have foresaw and, and it's here and it's, you know, there's going to be ramifications forever. I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on what you think in terms of public policy. Uh, right now, you know, the G20 nations have collectively spent about $11 trillion to create a sustainable recovery in light of the economic downturn. Like you said, we're, we're nine months into it at least stateside, but this thing is running probably close to a year uh, in terms of, you know, an initial outbreak. Um, so what responses to this economic crisis have been effective? And what do you think has been uh, sorely lacking? Oh, that's a good question, man. You're probably getting out of my wheelhouse on that question a little bit. But, um, you know, I know I work with a lot of business owners. We work with a lot of executives. And I think that the PPP program was pretty huge and saved a lot of businesses. I think that really did giving, creating that cash, that loan and, and potentially even a forgivable loan for businesses who are affected. I do not understand. And anybody trying to help me understand how somebody who goes on to unemployment, but then gets a bonus and somehow collects 140% of what they used to make being unemployed. I don't understand that. I don't understand how that's good for society. I don't understand that how that's good for anybody creating, you know, a dependency and giving somebody more money than they made when they were working in a layoff. I don't understand that at all. Can you, uh, can anybody help me understand how that's good? Because so many also business owners that we work with have talked about, they can't get people back to work, right? The people won't go back to work because why would you go back to work back when you were earning that extra money. I mean, why, I, there's, there should be some public policy that says if you go into unemployment, you can get up to maybe 90% of what you used to you make so that at least you're motivated to go back to work. I mean, I think as a society, we want people to work. We want people to go to work and be productive, not sit around and take from the system as, as opposed to contribute to it. So 
I guess those are two things that I think work one, one that worked well and one that I just don't understand. I think it's a complete and total disaster. I think it hurts businesses. I think it hurts individuals to create an unemployment that's bigger than the income they were making when they worked. <laughs> yeah. And that really gets into the question where there were, you know, countries that nationalized payroll. I think looking back at it, that might've been a more effective realm. Uh, just, you know, ensuring that a firm has someone to keep them on the docket as opposed to, you know, putting them on unemployment, like you said, where it's going to be temporary. They might be working, making more than when they were at the firm. But then at the end of the day, uh, unemployment's going to run out and then you're going to be forced right. to find a job in the midst of a pandemic, you know, which is currently, you know, supply lines have changed radically. So we mentioned the nature of work and, you know, so, some jobs have just been able to accommodate more to keeping people working remotely than, than, than obviously not. So, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean we're, like, we're, we're so lucky as advisors, right. Um, as an advisor, I mean, you can work remotely, you can serve your clients, you can still make trades, you can do your stuff. It's the poor, you know, it's the poor, uh, less, less fortunate class that, um, you know, works in a factory or, or that has a job where they just can't go restaurant workers. You know I mean? You, it's that, that's where people are really getting hurt. So it's too bad, but, um, yeah, I don't know about nationalizing payroll and stuff. You, you, it's, that's, that's intense, right? That's a big concept too, but certainly we had to do something, right? And we had to take action. And I think the, the action that was taken was uh, certainly has kept the market strong. And if the markets are strong, that's a pretty good indicator of, of I think, economic health and, and consumer confidence and just generally speaking, what's going on with profits, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever we've we've done and the steps we have take haven't been too disastrous because we're sitting here pretty stable. I'm looking at restaurants that I go out to. I mean, are you going to even, even now, even in COVID, even with mass restrictions and purple, I mean, there's people out, people spending money, people are doing things. So, you know, incomes must not be that bad and unemployment must not be that high to keep the population out and about doing what they're doing. Yeah. I I mean, and besides, you know, the element of monetary uh, fiscal policy is one thing, um, you know, whether it was PPP, whether it was the stimulus checks. Uh, but I really think from my perspective, the Fed has certainly been the big driver um, in keeping the economy afloat. You know, whether we're talking about cutting rates, engaging in quantitative easing, uh, they've expanded repo operations. There's a lot of other initiatives, you know, they're buying um, corporate debt. So, I, I mean, I guess how would we rate the Fed's response? What have they done well and, and what could they have done better? Oh, man, th- there you go. Like for me, I just, it's something that I can't control. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, right? As an advisor with the limited amount of time in my life to, to divide up between my work, my family, my hobbies, to try and rate the Fed and try and Monday morning quarterback what they did and what they've done and something that I don't have any control over. I don't spend a lot of time there. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think most advisors should spend very much time there because it's just something that we can't control, you know, a long time a philosophy of focus on what you can control and what you have impact over and ignore the rest and uh, sure be aware of it. But so I, I don't know. I can't even answer that. I can't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel confident saying they should have done this or I'm going to give them this grade because I, I just don't, uh, 
yeah, I don't feel like I'm, I'm in a position to do that. Yeah. Well, I think we're all kind of in a situation where the, the institutions uh, certainly changed, uh, you know, over the last several years in kind of scope and breadth. I mean, well, I guess one thing is, you know, when we're looking at financial advisories uh, from a market perspective, I think we've seen some, you know, wildness for sure. Right. Uh, especially after <laughs> <laughs> Pfizer's November 9th announcement, you know, the, the, that vaccine was highly effective. I, it appears that, you know, they, and then Moderna announced some positive um, vaccine as well. And, and since then, we've seen some good movements in like energy and airline cruisers and, and chips, et cetera. Uh, but then we're also kind of seeing layoffs in the tech landscape or uh, kind of sell-offs, at least over the last couple of weeks. Um, when we're looking at Amazon and Netflix and Facebook uh, yep. today, the Dow looks like it's going over 30,000 as a tr- transition to power, you know, kind of began. So, I mean, what as an advisor do you, are you telling your clients about like in the short term with, you know, w- what is kind of been a wild ride? Right. Drew, we, we um, coach our clients and educate them up to, to understand that there's always volatility in the market, right? This just happens to be the volatility we're experiencing today. And it has the, the certain headlines and, and the name attached to it today, which is, what we all know is COVID and all this, but uh, you know, if you look at the markets on average, on average each year, the average is a 14% decline. There's at least a 14% decline from peak to trough at some point during the year. So volatility is really not new. It's not different. And so I think investors, people have to decide, are you an investor or are you a gambler? You know, is this your Vegas that you get to do from your home or do you put your money to work over long-term focus on certain factors and, and fundamentals of, of great companies and, 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 and great bonds that you lend your money to great institutions that you lend your money to. And do you um, stay put and ride out that volatility for us? That is the, the, the direction that we spend our time and energy is right. Helping our clients know, Hey, there's volatility. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it uncomfortable? Certainly. Can we talk about it? Yes. Should we revisit your financial plan? Yes, let's make sure that you're on track. Let's revisit your portfolio. But, you know, it, it's not a, a, a making decisions because of the headlines or the news that's coming out or the volatility that we're experiencing because those always lead to behavioral blunders, right? We study a lot of behavioral finance. One of the great studies that comes out every single year is Dalbar's quantitative mm-hmm. analysis of investor behavior, talking about how investors do so poorly. Well, most advisors do poorly too. They don't tell anybody because it would, it would make them look really bad. They make a living giving bad advice, but a large percentage of advisors are out there, you know, bobbing and weaving and, and diving in and out and making really bad decisions for their clients and not helping their clients stick to a investment philosophy that's rooted in discipline, that's rooted in academic evidence, historic proof and data. Uh, and so that's what we do differently. And we build portfolios, we revisit them all the time with our investment committee, but we don't make changes because of headlines and certain uh, events and certain volatility. We make changes because it's the right thing to do based upon exposure to factors, maybe a little bit of a, a look at 
where the economic and global macroeconomic environment is and, and, and even possibly some thematic plays within that. But by and large, it's get invested, be an investor, deal with the volatility and change your portfolio. If you don't want volatility, restructure your portfolio so that it has less volatility. If you don't mind volatility and you need a higher rate of return, then go get it, right? It's easy to do. Yeah, and absolutely. And it's it's interesting you brought up Dalbar because we've, you know, on the marketing end, we certainly love them in terms of thought leadership. And, yeah. you know, when you get into some of their numbers, it's it's wild how much herd behavior and, <laughs> you know, uh, confirmation bias really, you know, af- affect actual returns. It's, you know, the, the, typically the average, you know, when we talk about the market, I find it's, well, it went down 35% this year, but when you're looking at how people actually experienced it in terms of when they were timing it and inflows, I mean, they, the end client typically loses a couple points more than the market. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, how about those two, Drew, you think about like, so we have about a thousand clients and, you know, for the most part, everybody's stuck, stuck to the philosophy. It stuck to the discipline, stuck to this plan, right? We revisited their plan, their strategy. We talked about volatility, reminded them of all the, all the evidence that supports to not getting emotional and making behavioral blunders. But there were some we couldn't help. Right? There was a couple, I'm thinking of two specifically, one who just, you know, kept telling me around March 23rd that things are going to get worse. I just know things are going to get worse. There's no reason to be invested right now. We can just wait till things get better and then we'll get back in. And I'm like, that's a really great strategy. But the problem with what you're saying is wait till things get better means you're waiting till there's good news and the market's at an all-time high. And then you're going to tip back in and you're going to do what the average investor typically does, which is sell at the bottom and buy back in at the top. And I couldn't save that client. They're out. So I said, I can't work with you. We can't do this because we're so disciplined in what we do. And without saying rigid, we're rigid in our investment philosophy. And we don't allow, you know, we understand and empathize with our clients' sensitivity to volatility and how we feel, because that's a real feeling. But we're not going to change our investment philosophy and appease a client by supporting them on getting out, right? It doesn't work. Uh, another client I can think of is was multiple uh, millions of dollars who 100% cash, uh, two days before the low and just couldn't save him still sitting in a hundred percent cash with, you know, call it $2 million. The, the, I mean, this is a, this is a $600,000, $700,000 mistake. Mm -hmm. That's painful. Right. And, and we couldn't save him. So it's now it's like, now what do I do? It's, you know, I'm not going to say I told you so, because there's no benefit. Nobody's going to win by that. But the poor guy is just, he's broken hearted. <laughs> I'm like, I told you, man, I showed you there's just no, do not do this. And he was, the, the bad news is he was in a portfolio too, that was um, really well diversified and it didn't, wasn't exposed to a whole bunch of volatility anyway, but <laughs> he just missed out on, on all this, uh, all the upside. So it's sad. Well, this, this is actually kind of off, off script, but, but like, uh, you know, from what you're telling me, I'd be curious. I mean, there's a lot of financial psychology on who is a uh, kind of bullish versus, um, you know, bearish investor. 
And I'm just wondering with your clients, how much of this do you see as generational? Because I feel like, you know, when you see any survey on millennials and, and uh, when we're talking about, you know, generation uh, Z, that they seem to be quite a bit more, you know, conservative. Uh, I mean, how much of that's due to 2008 or now or or do you think that's just anecdotal and that millennials can be just as aggressive as anyone else? Um, yeah, I would say it's anecdotal just because I'm thinking of some of our clients that are millennials and they're, you know, we, we structured a zero to 10 kind of strategy, zeros, capital preservation, 10s, aggressive growth and several millennial younger clients that we have are they're I guess it kind of goes, I can think of both, right? So it's so individualized, but I can think of a couple who are just, they're, they're, they're 12s on a one to 10 scale, right? It's, it's all go get it. It's all grow. And, um, but I do think there's a higher level of understanding that markets are going to be volatile from the younger generations. I, I feel like there's also a, a certain age and I think it's probably the 60 year old demographic that have, have ran a business. They've been successful. They've controlled their destiny. They've made decisions. And I think there's a group of that age, a 60, 70, an 80, it tends to be an older that, that feels like they can still control the markets, right? Or they can still control their outcome by getting in or out or picking the right stock and, and, and doing that. I feel like because there was probably a time 30 years ago and I'm way off script for you. So I apologize, but there's a time, you know, 30 years ago where there really was value in uh, doing your due diligence, doing your research, picking that stock, picking it because information was not readily available to everybody, right? People came to brokers, investors, clients would come to brokers. We're not brokers, but they would come to brokers Mm -hmm. to, get information. Nowadays you go to a financial advisor and you go to somebody, hopefully who's a fiduciary so that you can have them sift through the masses of information and bring you what actually matters, right? Because the markets have become so much more efficient. There's so much information readily available everywhere you turn. And, um, so I don't know. A demographic thing is interesting. I find that the older clients, um, and I don't, I'm not calling them old because they're 60. Darn, I'm almost getting there. But you, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about, you know. Age is just a number. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is just a number, exactly. But there, uh, there, there's a certain group of people who still believe that they can, can you control their outcome of the market by how they dive in and dive out or buy and sell and time it. And those, those people, if you look at their real performance over time, it's not great, right? It's not good. <laughs> versus embracing the power of the market. Yeah. I, I mean, and then like, I, I just feel what often gets lost in the conversation in which we try and kind of discuss and in, in our thought leadership is uh, your money has to work harder, you know, in a big sell-off. So if you're 30, um, I mean, let's take like 1931, right? That was like the largest stock market decline, a little over 33, 43%. Uh, I mean, for you to make it that up in the next year, I mean, you would have required a 78% gain, right? Yeah. So it's just. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, isn't, that, isn't that stink how that works? You go down 50, you have to go up 100 to get back to even. Right, right. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's often lost, you know, when you're just, uh, 
you know, it takes a second to kind of think through that one. But, um, but yeah. And I guess, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, Dalbar and everything else. But that being said, you know, I, I feel like actively managed strategies and mutual funds have kind of lost a lot of their inflows at the expense of exchange traded funds. So, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, people still think they can be, um, you know, whether or not they can be individual stock pickers, well, maybe that's not the case anymore, but um, people seem to be even venturing from someone else picking the stocks for you to just going to something passive. So have you seen much, I mean, is intelligence driven advisors, have you written more ETFs for your clients recently, uh, kind of coinciding with the market trend or are you still guys still looking at a lot of mutual funds or just well, generally what, yeah. yeah. Well, when we tend to lean towards ETFs uh, mm-hmm. in our portfolios, uh, tax efficiency and the generally more passive nature of them and lower cost are attractive to us. But when I think about mutual funds, I always think very DFA-esque, you know, DFA-esque, which those mutual funds are also low cost, market-based, not really active, right? I think of mutual funds like Vanguard. Um, there are a few places and a few situations where I think an active money manager can provide some value, but by and large, I think that's really small. I think that that where you're actually going to get good value out of an active money manager, it's tough, tough to find that. And it's tough for that manager to repeat. The evidence is, is overwhelming that, you know, most actively managed mutual funds do not and actively manage private accounts and actively manage stock picking stock brokers and advisors. They don't outperform their benchmarks. And if they do, oftentimes it's because they got lucky and then they don't subsequently outperform in the next similar time frame. So we as a firm at intelligence driven advisors have always been quite market based or over the last six or seven years, very market based, right? We're going to get exposure to the markets. We're going to find out what our, what, what target rate of return our clients need to achieve their stated financial purpose and goals. And then we're going to construct a portfolio that delivers a target rate of return that that client needs. And we're going to do that by embracing the, the power of the markets and embracing how the markets work. So the best way for us to get exposure to the markets and the certain factors that we like, uh, small cap as a factor, value as a factor, minimum volatility as a factor, momentum as a factor, uh, profitability, uh, quality, those types of factors. We can get those really cleanly and very inexpensively and wildly tax efficiently in ETFs. So that's what we like and we use most and um, it works really well. Yeah. And that's, you know, you bring, it's interesting when we think of mutual funds. Uh, I mean, I just guess one that I remember off the top of my head in 2013 was the uh, Matthews India funds and, yeah. you know, even you're right. And even mm-hmm. funds like that, like that, a lot of that was allocated to Bombay stock exchange. So even though they're looking at a ton of uh, fixed income positions without India and a lot of equity picks without India, you know, a lot of even an actively managed, you know, region funds, uh, might be heavily tracking, you know, the local stock market. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, the active management game and the mutual fund game, they start four or five mutual funds. 
two of them, you know, have, or three of them have horrible, two have decent performance. So they close the two and they roll those into the longer. I mean, there's a, it's, I mean, the, the, you just have to ask yourself, do you think that any one person or one group of people, AKA a mutual fund company or a, your stock broker in his local Merrill Lynch office, and no, I'm not picking on Merrill Lynch, but in your local financial office, do they know something about stocks and bonds that the rest of the hundreds of millions of market participants and all the market participants' computers don't also know? Because mm-hmm. right? if you're an active money manager, you're trying to buy a publicly traded security, at least in the actively managed publicly traded market. You're trying to buy a security that you think you have some information that's going to tell you why that stock is going to diverge from the rest of the marketplace and do better. So the question is, well, if you're the only one that knows that, that's great. But if everybody else knows that, is it already priced into the market? And is it already built into it? And I would, I would say that, yes, by and large, it already is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess one of the other things is when you're looking at mutual funds is, uh, and this, I don't think this should shock anybody, but it seems like the managers and directors of a mutual fund, the more they have invested their own money, the more it's likely to perform better. Yeah. Um, at least, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Good one. And, and I guess kind of moving on to, you know, where you think in terms of where to pick across the globe. Um, I mean, how much, how bullish are you on Asia? I mean, it appears to me that China's, Looks like it'll be the world's biggest luxury market by 2025. I mean, you certainly got the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but we've been talking about Asia for, you know, for, for years and years and years. And just, I guess, currently, how bullish are you investing in China and Asia in general? Um, and, you know, how many of those funds are you kind of looking at uh, when you're discussing these big global trends with your clients? Yeah, so it's a great question. I- and man, is it a lot to try and digest and understand all that, right? But um, we look at kind of where is where is global capitalization exist? So right, where are goods and services being produced around the globe? And then we want a somewhat representative allocation to those areas. So if you look at you know global capitalization, you know, 55% of global capitalization in equities comes out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Only 55%. Yet most investors' portfolios are like 95% U.S. So I think that's a mistake. So to answer your question, you know, we, we are looking at where uh, goods and services are being produced. What does the capitalization look like and, and availability through publicly traded companies? And we're grabbing that approximate amount of exposure to those areas. We tend to tilt a little bit towards the U.S. because we like the U.S. It's very regulated and it's very transparent, comparatively speaking, and seems to be a, 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 a great place to do business. But And a lot of our U.S. companies are also doing business internationally. So, But we believe in emerging markets. Man, they're volatile. And they go, you know, you get, you get big volatility, you get long trend lines, but um, I think you would be remiss trying to create a rate of return of say seven and a half percent or eight percent rate of return. I think you'd be making a mistake constructing a portfolio that does not have exposure to even China. And I don't like doing business with communist countries, um, but it's like they're 
um, you know, there's still some opportunities there probably, especially when you look at other places like India and whatnot. I think there's opportunities everywhere uh, on the globe. You just got to get exposure to them in the right uh, an amount that matches a portfolio that fits your overall financial plan. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt like China's been communist name only for, for quite some time. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, yeah, the exactly. party, party <laughs> structure definitely exists, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, um, I studied abroad and I remember in college in Shanghai and there was a, this is just kind of an anecdotal, but it was, yeah. um, there's a talk show and, uh, one of the women there, she said that she would rather be, uh, she would rather be crying in a Mas- Maserati than laughing on a bicycle. Right. So that's, that's not <laughs> typically what we think of as a communist mind frame. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're communists, but yet they're, they're, uh, but they're also capitalists. I, it's, it's a weird dynamic, right? I mean, you look at what they're doing globally and, and that's been good, I think for, uh, markets, it's been good for people in China, right? The standard of living has gone up, but um, yeah, that's uh, I, I think there's opportunities all over in Asia if and you need to get exposure to them for sure. Studying abroad, you studied in Asia in China, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, I did my six month study abroad in Shanghai. Um, oh my gosh, so, how fun! Yeah, it was a great time. Um, didn't keep much of the language, but uh, you know, definitely had some good times in Shanghai. It's a wow. wild, wild, wild city. <laughs> what a learning experience. That's cool. I guess kind of to, you know, uh, the last thing I'll kind of ask is, you know, how do you guys view market valuations? I mean, they remain incredibly frothy. We, we like to look at like the Schiller PE um, and that's still very historically high. And this comes after, you know, a year where we saw, the market just can go completely belly up, you know, over 30% in the spring. Um, and it's kind of risen back to the level. So how much are you looking at pricing? Is the market irrational exuberance or is a lot of it warranted? Um, or, and, and do you just think a lot of these historical trend lines just don't amount to as much as they might've used to? I, I think probably a little bit of that, but, but if you run a portfolio the correct way, then as you have asset classes that do really well and certain asset classes, if you look at the PE ratio, um, you know, certain asset classes have a, a relatively high PE ratio right now. Other asset classes have a relatively low PE ratio. So <clears throat> the way we like to think of it is we're going to have a global diversification. We're going to have a bunch of different asset classes that we want exposure to and different factors. As those asset classes and factors do extremely well over time, we trim profits out of those, right? We bring those back. They get to be too big of a piece of the portfolio. So we'll trim those back. We'll add the, the trimmings, uh, for lack of a better word, to asset classes that are, that are underpriced or that haven't done well. And so <clears throat> by doing that, I eliminate the, the challenge and the game of trying to decide you know, is the, is the Schiller PE ratio too high? And is that going to drive my opinions in, in a, in a singular view or drive the way I shape my portfolio? Or should I just let uh, the portfolio do that when I know I cross through thresholds and a certain mm-hmm. asset class becomes too big. So we tend to do the, the latter, our strategy, which is not, you know, just not focusing too much on that PE because you know, I mean, I think it was five years ago. I had 
somebody presenting an argument about how we shouldn't have equities because the Schiller PE was just too high. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you looked at it historically, you're going to have terrible returns. And it was a bear market strategy. And if you look at the perma bears that are out there, geez, I don't even know if they are, but Peter Scheif, I think was one and Malden, these guys who are just perma bears, right? They're always, the market's going to go down. The market's going to go down. Yeah, um, they're, they're, they're always they're, living in the ice. For sure. Well, and they're yeah. right. The yeah. broken mm-hmm. clock is right twice a day, right? So once mm-hmm. they're right, they sell thousands of newsletters. They make tons of money and they talk about how they called the certain downturn, but yet if you're a bear the whole time, well, eventually you're going to be right and you can sell some newsletters. But you, the problem is when you're trying to do that for clients' portfolios, when you're trying to manage people's money and their livelihood depends on how well you do, um, you know, I, I can't be wrong 23 hours a day and be right too. I need to be right uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we feel like that, that there's just a better way to do it. Um, and, and, and the people who are sitting out because the market was too high and holding 20% cash five years ago have just lost huge opportunity. So again, it goes back to volatility is going to come. It's going to go. you got to have a right diversified portfolio. I know that at, at WealthFest, you guys have a lot of different investment opportunities for people to decorrelate from the market. And mm-hmm. that's important, right? you gotta, you got to, as an advisor, you have to help a client find uncorrelated assets. Cause I think the, you look at how long stocks are staying private. And so therefore the longer run in private equities, um, you look at real estate, different things. There's, there's other ways to invest besides stocks and bonds, traditionally speaking. And you, you know, those non-correlated asset classes that still have a, a respectable rate of return really can, can kind of shift the whole efficient frontier of a portfolio and give you a better, ultimate experience, right? Less volatility, more return or whatever it is. So I don't know, man, the PE ratio and all that stuff is, um, I think you can get caught up in that and kind of get the, the tail wagging the dog and, and it, it, it can, can leave you in a bad situation. Um, but it, it, but it's something to consider too, right? It's, you got to look at all, all, all the different, all the different avenues and factors and things that, uh, we have to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and well, Jason, I think it's been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. Uh, My pleasure. Where, uh, for our, for our listeners, how would you say the best way to listen to the financial detox podcast is? Do you just kind of, do you have an, uh, yeah. anywhere podcasts are played, sorry, anywhere podcasts are played, they're out there. So well, I think that's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, podcast player on an iPhone and they're everywhere. Right. So, um, that, that's a great way to do it. And then I also, uh, wrote a book called financial detox as well. Uh, that was published in, in early 18. It's on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. And, uh, yeah, we're just, we hope we can help advisors do a better job for their clients and certainly help our clients do a better job. And I appreciate you having us on letting us, uh, chit chat for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, uh, for all our listeners out there. Uh, we'd, like to drop this this week, but if not, um, the first thing after this Thanksgiving break. Uh, Thanks for all your likes and subscriptions, and uh, we'll talk to you again later. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 
Wealthfest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. Wealthfest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.